arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Chapter 49 From the lighted rock entrance, the white shoreline bordered a grainy trail just like under Bathurst Island. Knowledge continuously entered his brain like water cascading over a prodigious cliff. The Grebes existed here from the time of Tabun Shah. Loftus knew Kath and John had accompanied DeLuca through this very opening, but they had arrived years in the past. Zack, they were here long ago. Do you sense that? How is this possible? Something about that passageway, Captain. It warps time and space. The Greaves silently led them inside. The carved cave reminded him of the complex at Appleton. The Greaves planned to bring them to a preparation area and process them for transfer to the planet. They would temporarily alter internal speech patterns and give them knowledge of the culture and the proper clothing. Loftus worried about his friends as he and Zack descended into the mountain. When were they brought in here? Are they on the planet? Does the passageway really alter time? His internal awareness vanished with his questions and he was left with a vacant feeling. Perhaps these machines had reached the limits of their instructions. The rocks sloped upward and crystallized into a spectacular glass cavern. I wonder what's on this planet, said Zack, if it is a planet. Where is Tarbin Shah? asked Loftus. We need to know this. Confidentially, Captain, I don't think it's number one on their list of things to do. Loftus faced dozens of the minute creatures. Earth, our planet is controlled by a single creod. Do you understand? As he spoke, two of the Greaves firmly grabbed his arms and legs and hoisted him onto a glass cube. When they released him, a brilliant aqua field, intensified at his toes, started up his legs. Loftus watched in amazement his leather boots, with tassels and baggy tan leggings spontaneously formed. His skin tingled as the field progressed, 
draping his upper body with a faded pink shirt and pullover of the same tightly knit material. The advancing field paused at his bunshoff and then continued up his neck. He was still breathing heavily when he opened his eyes. The grebes were gone. I don't feel like I'm speaking another language, Zach, said Loftus as he tried to extricate himself from the table. How would we know? Why have you trapped us here? His table hummed forward. Zag in his baggy brown top and pants was now moving. Embedded in the smooth glass crystal ahead were several darkened archways that brightened to a simple village with huts and dirt streets. Humans in loose-fitting clothing walked freely amidst a few larger pastel-skinned creatures with shaggy hair. Looks like a cross between a brontosaurus and a horse, said Zack. Smaller, short-haired creatures closely resembling muscular dogs darted occasionally between the wooden buildings. We're headed toward two different openings, Zack. We have to break loose. Meet at the largest public building in the village. Understood, Captain. As he passed under the archway, another wave of understanding reassured him the Grebes placed all travelers onto the planet. Their fascination with the Bunshoff centered on his ancient beliefs of the planet. They thought the Bunshoff led to answers for survival of every Mantari in the universe. His paths would straighten if he placed his blind trust in Tabunshah. All things passed through Tabunshah. Zack, I can't see you. I'm inside the other archway, Captain, he said in a muffled voice. I sense the Greaves. They're telling me to trust in Tabun Shah. Once we're outside the village, on the planet, we have to locate this Tabun Shah. I think that's the ticket to all of this, Captain. We... Zack's voice faded in a blast of light that nearly blinded Loftus. He closed his eyes and floated off the table. His arms moved freely and he tumbled into the glare until he lingered above a dirt road. He tucked and rolled onto the grit, but quickly regained his footing. Behind him, a small square surrounded by wood and light stucco buildings looked similar to Earth. He walked through the warm air and across the dirt alleyway shadows. Two men with scraggly gray hair pointed at him as he wandered along the buildings. Zack should have followed him through the archway. Loftus did not see him. Was this the Mantari home to the ancient Tabun Shah? A few people passed him without notice as he neared the square and sat on a weathered wood bench. He marveled while being on another planet as he dragged his boots through the rusty soil and peered through the trees at the yellow sun. The push carts and wagons pulled by sloping, necked horse creatures transited the square. A cluster of villages gathered along trays of colorful vegetables across the other side and he smelled meat cooking. More official-looking men in smooth tan fabric clothing entered the red-tiled hall next to a towering blue spire. A crowd cheered in the distance. Loftus feared the Greeds had sent Zack to another location on the planet. He stood again and cut across the square. People chatted around the marketplace and his transformed brain actually understood the language. When he looked back, the two old men from the alley, dressed in faded green rags, continued to find him fascinating. They shouted across the square. Oryx songs! Oryx songs! Loftus wandered across the square, but he could hear men shouting from behind. Other men circled around him and continued shouting. A bushy, gray-haired man in a dusty coat with a black fringe collar pushed the two old men away. The villager in a crimson cloak followed him up to Loftus. 
The villager waved papers at the bushy-haired man. What about the land purchases, Darabal? Be still, aren't. Is this the planet of Tabun Shah? Asked Loftus. Both of the old men pointed directly at Loftus. Tabun Shah! He talks of Tabun Shah! Again, is Tabun Shah on this planet? Asked Loftus. He answers to Tabun Shah. He is the Oryx Soms, said a man with missing front teeth. You fell from the air, said another man, gyrating his arms. From nothing, you are the Oryx Soms, the evil. I am not evil, you don't understand. The Greaves, liar, liar. It is not permitted to have evil in our midst. The tribunal must be warned. The Tolton will kill Tabun Shah worshippers and the Askrans. You are evil. Why is Tabun Shah evil? Ah, he has admitted his guilt with Tabun Shah, exclaimed the toothless man. They both backed away when Darabal pushed them back. I have admitted nothing, shouted Loftus. Go on your way, friend, said Darabal. Darabout moved with the man in the cloak across the square. The two old men repeatedly looked back as they ran and finally disappeared back into the alley. Loftus moved in the opposite direction. He passed along the thick diamond pane windows and a few open air shops strewn with silver and gold trinkets. He saw himself reflected across a dozen separated glass panes. They had given him baggy brown leggings tied at the waist with a fiber cord. His dull pink shirt was dyed in perfectly, and the suede boots were laced up to his ankles. The bunshaf, given to him by his dying father on a distant planet, glistened in the sunlight. The Greaves claimed the bunshaf was the key to Mantari's survival. He spent the next 10 to 15 minutes looking for Zack in the square, and then stepped inside the center gazebo. A few villagers leaned on the stone balustrade as he sat on the edge. The winding hilly streets stretched beyond the square into the countryside. A ruddy woman with a brown bandana half smiled when he turned. Where am I? Her brow tightened. Why would you ask? I'm lost. You are in the mead. Where else would you be? Who is the Tolton? She hesitated. The Tolton rules the mead, of course. And Tabun Shah? Her face hardened and she tightened her bandana. That is not to be spoken. Why not? Do not put yourself in jeopardy. Do not. She spun around and scurried back into the square. He watched her blend into the crowd that had gathered on the dirt road. In his dreams, the Montang revered Tabusha. One of the shaggy, long-necked creatures, as large as a horse, inched toward the gazebo and dipped his fluffy head under the roof. Loftus studied its fist-sized, powder blue eyes. He smiled and ran his fingers along the soft fur's snout. The animal's mouth opened, revealing chunky, rounded white teeth. Loftus retracted his hand, and the animal's blue tongue licked his arm. The tongue was smooth. He laughed loudly. You remind me of a horse. The animal exhaled through a single rounded nostril and dipped its head again. Loftus grinned and again rubbed its snout. A man in sweeping green fabric appeared from behind a supply car to his right. How much do you bid on the Guampas? He's young and can haul a hefty load alone. How much would you suggest I bid? Start the bidding at 50 garrets. 50? Well, maybe I was a little hasty, sir. 35 garrets. The Guampas brushed his soft snout against Loftus's arm. 
You have him well trained. See, he's smart, an intelligent animal. I will pass until I need a guampus. The man exposed his large teeth again. I am at the wayward sector. You asked for Almon. I will, said Loftus, again rubbing the guampus's snout. The animal's triangular ears perked up and it skirted around the gazebo. Loftus smiled and walked around the rim. Spicy food aromas wafting down from the hills produced pangs in his stomach. The gazebo shook and the ground rumbled. He turned toward the dirt road. Red and black uniformed men with spiked glossy black helmets and wide breastplates raced the white guampas toward the square. Loftus stepped out of the gazebo. He gazed over his shoulder at the curved hilly road as several guampuses raced across the square. The guampas quickly surrounded him and the dust-covered men leaped to the ground. In one motion they removed sharp steel swords from their black sheaths. In the square, the two old men in dirty clothes tagged after a uniformed men and a contingent of dog-like animals. The toothless man pointed at him and jumped up and down. There! There! An agent of Tabunshah! The soldiers blocked them with their swords and the pink-eyed dog creatures sniffed at his feet. A chunky, unshaven guard stepped forward up to Loftus. These men are citizens of the Mead, and they claim you appeared from the air in the alley. How do you respond to the charges, Oryx Soames? I respond, said Loftus, displaying his teeth, by telling you I don't know what you're talking about. Uncas has a witness, said the guard. He waved the other man forward. Alos, what did you see? He is the Oryx Soames, Yarish. We saw him appear. No one does such things without the help of Tabin Shah. Loftus shook his head and half closed his eyes. Suppose he's right. See? He admits! One of the dogs growled and Alos kicked him. Foolish, Arsenic! Foolish! Why hate Tabun Shah? I don't understand. Ah, the truth comes out, said Uncas. The guard thought for a moment before he faced Loftus. The Protectorate will bring you to the Tribunal for questioning and trial. The guard motioned his men closer and they scattered the Arseks with their swords. Loftus stared at the glistening steel. I'm innocent! Then you will prove it, liars, and those guilty of Tavonshaw worship will be thrown into the Cadia, the Acid Pit. The Tolton allows no demons or evil in our midst. Chapter 50. Sard gripped the observation ossel's rail and stared into the emptiness of space. The Azoths formed familiar patterns now. He had successfully convinced the upper echelon that the Aragosta needed extensive repairs. A charted course to Serbon, an exclusively military Urkum, provided a secure distance from the home Urkum. This Urkum housed training facilities and a large portion of the outer amperage ships. Sard sensed confidence in his plan. Serbon's Vargas and Proascas had served with Sard over many campaigns. He would stress a moral imperative to justify toppling the upper echelon. As Creod officers, indoctrinated in discipline and loyalty, breaking their sacred oaths meant sacrilege, but Sard was sure they would listen. No one in the military had achieved more victories. Sard had personally led the ground combat, forcing the Tabun Shah off the home Urkum. Aside from the obvious Mantari problem, Sard had also captured 26 Urkums for the greater glory of the realm. His stature bordered on legend. 
He counted on their outrage at the Echelon's passivity and knew once he controlled the power of Serbon, he could marshal an attack on the home Urkum. The rust-hued Aragosta needed minor repairs, but while docked, shuttle Azakars would transport additional security and munitions aboard. Sard had left the observation arsenal, never more sure that he could accomplish his goals. He stepped into the Thassian's red-filtered light. Sard wishes transport to the Icean. As the black pinpoints swirled inside the crimson glow, Sard's thoughts formed an image of killing Bachak and the other Echelon members with his craw. Once he was in power, the Echelon Hall would be filled with Creods from around the Humea, who would sanction and obey whatever he said. And his next action, after assuming power, involved seeking out the Tabun Shah and the other Manteri Urkums to achieve final victory. The Icean materialized in the light and he strode onto the solid floor. All Selvets fell to their knees. He allowed them to rise and move toward Roik, studying his Urkum charts at his Nakedum. Present position, Huta. He called as he walked down the ramp's corrugated metal. Preparing to enter the Serbon system, Bargat Gaman. He glanced up at Sard, and we do have clearance from the military echelon, Elkin himself. Elkin, Sard is pleased. We will proceed to Serbon and will be port linking at the arsenal as per your order, Vargat Gaman. Status of Vargat's blaze, Aorn, Timeric, and Mia. They will be present when we are at portal linking, replied Huta. Sard nodded, and he leaned over Roik's Nakedum. Roik, you were at your Nakedum when Sard went below. Scanning for inferiors, Vargat Gaman. You have implemented Sard's thoughts well. Sard will not rest until the inferiors are removed from the Humea. Roik trained his matrices on the screen as he spoke. When Sard defeats the upper echelon, we will be free to pursue that end. You will accompany Sard to the portal link ceremonies. I am honored. He lowered his knees to the floor. I will follow your orders to the death, Vargat Garmin. Sard rewards loyalty. You may rise and accompany Sard below. Roik stood, his matrixes bright and blue. This is a historic moment. History begins with but a tiny minion seed, said Sard, motioning him upward. Sard's Nakedum contained the groupings of all Proascas and Vargats loyal to Sard. Traitors would die. Five Vargats with unquestioned loyalty would meet him in the arsenal. The dimly lit ramp widened to a slew of Nakedums adjacent to the arched hollow's opening. The Selvan at the console paid homage. Sard quickly motioned him up and stood with Roik at the portal bay opening. Fifty silver cluster Azakars were symmetrically aligned under the shaded overhead bulbs to the starry blue entry portal. Each Azakar had aligned battle status. All Selvats would begin attack immediately upon his command. Roik followed Sard up the ladder to the upper level. As he reached the top, the long portal span revealed a multifaceted, silhouetted orbiting arsenal against Serbon's pale green clouds. Saad grasped the upper rail and pulled himself onto the grid. He and Roik jaunted through the portal and down the arsenal ramp. All five Vargats conversed with the Selvats near the Shooter Fortress's green light. 
Tamaric saw them first and told the others. They all paid homage as Sard entered the arsenal. Rise. The Selvets resumed their duties and the Bargats stood. Sard faced each of them separately, calling them by name as he passed. All had served Sard brilliantly in past campaigns. Old friends, Sard has requested you meet him to discuss the present security in the realm. We will determine present defensive status and collective abilities to defend the realm from all outsiders. Once the Aragoster is docked for repairs, Sard will gain your insights. We are honored, said Elkin, a shorter and heavier Varget with a pronounced green scar from his matrix to his mouth. Other than Sard, he was the senior Varget. The Arsenal Conference Orsel is prepared as you have ordered, Varget Garmin. Sard is pleased, Elkin, and pleased to see you again. You share with Sard battles that have brought greater glory to the realm. The two senior Creods walked ahead of the others to a guarded door near the large orange Nikitim's tactical maps. I understand Albashar was involved in ground combat, said Elkin. Sard faced a defensive shield over the village, a source that could only have come from the Tabun Shah. Our shooters were ineffective. Elkin motioned him inside the room, containing a forward Nakedum and a long table with thin-backed resters. Sard brought his selvets under the defensive shield to face the inferiors. With our Westex and shooters, we obliterated the inferiors. A shield provided by inferiors? Sard thinks the Tabun Shah. You have my homage, Vargar Garmin, he said as the other Vargats followed Roik into the room. Another Manteri Urkum has fallen. Soon you will find the Tabungshar. Sard will need your help in that quest. You have my loyalty, you know that, said Elkin. Sard turned as the Vargats filed into the room and took positions behind the resters. He stared at the Urkum's green-lined curvature against dark space as the blue-white Azos shined above the glow. The Selvets stepped back into the arsenal and the doors clamped into place. Sard returned to the front of the room. Be seated. Darken the room. The Nakedum shut off the overhead lights, leaving only the white tubes along the wall base. Sard activated a frozen image of the upper echelon towers. His fangs nudged outward. Sard will not hide the words behind his fangs. Ayak Thrawn, and of course the powerful Bachek, three misguided traitorous Creods. You are speaking of our leaders, said Aorn. Creods, out of touch with the present realities of the realm, Sard speaks of traitors misguided with no military experience. They sit in their upper echelon towers, isolated from the realm. Yet, they make decisions affecting all of us. Aeon stood abruptly. They are our leaders, elected by the Assembly. Sard does not recognize the Assembly's power. Why? said Aeon. He took one step towards Sard, but stopped when Sard showed his fangs. Why have you called such a meeting? How dare- Let the Varget Garmin speak, said Mia, pounding his grasper on the table. Not all of us fall at the mention of the upper echelon, added Tameric. I think respect is in order for the upper echelon. Respect? 
asked Sard. He deliberately rounded the table until he was directly across from Aorn. How many of our Urkums lack shipping capacity needed for supply lines? This is due to the policies of your precious Echelon. Food, clothing, vital supplies are held back because the Echelon made the decision to lower production of the new transport Azacars. No new transport Azacars are under construction. Our amperage is not even allowed to patrol the outer barriers of the Sortines. Are there not other races who would not hesitate to attack the realm? Sard tells you, if we let down our defenses, there will be no realm. Agreed, Vargagamon, said Blaze. He stood and scanned the group. I think the Vargagamon is relaying truth that we all have been concerned with during the last few reefs. Then you all understand where the upper echelon has led us. We must stop this treacherous, disrespectful speech, said Aorin loudly. It will only lead us into trouble. Sarge stared at him as the room fell silent. He drew his westick, and with his fangs fully exposed, he stormed around the table. Aeon's matrixes brightened when Sard placed the westick blade next to his throat. You will remain seated, Aeon, and in compliance, or Sard will kill you where you stand. Aeon's fangs were never revealed as he sat. Sard placed his westick back in the sheath. One of the Vargas shouted something, and Sard turned as Aeon rushed him with a drawn westick and his fangs fully protruded. Sard swung his craw across Aeon's midsection. Aeon buckled, and his westick clanged to the floor. Sard then pummeled Aeon with his graspers. No one stopped the humiliation and cheered when Aeon fell to his knees. As he pleaded for mercy, Sard slid out his westick and hacked off Aeon's appendages one by one. Aeon screamed as yellow saurine sprayed across the wall and a larger puddle formed on the black floor near the tube lights. Sard lifted Aeon's body upward and hurled him against the outer wall. In agony, Aeon flipped across the floor. Sard swiped at his neck. The recalcitrant Vargat's head hung on the bone. No one challenges Sard. Sard pushed his westick through Aeon's chest cavity. With a resolute calmness, he placed the dripping serrated blade back in its sheath and returned to the Nikitams up front. Elkin finally stood. We are ready to hear what you have to say, Vargat Garmin. The realm is in great danger. How soon we have forgotten the attacks on the Denjo settlements. How soon we have forgotten the fall of the inner Urkums. Is the long-fought campaign to drive Tob and Shar inferiors from the home Urkum but a distant memory? The Tob and Shar is hiding and waiting. Sard has read their ancient words from their Saba. Sard believes what they believe. They accept the truth that the Suri of Khan will arise from obscurity and fight the enemy in a final battle. We, fellow Vargats, are that enemy. The enemy of those who would hide like cowards. All while preparing to fight again and accomplish what they could not accomplish at Galga. And the Echelon tells Sard that the remaining Manteri Urkums are no threat. The inferior Saba is specific. Time is an ally. He wears down his enemies and gives strength to fight another day. He takes the lurid memories and dilutes the bitter poison. 
As the enemy forgets, time forgives, and with forgiveness, courage flees. With time, the victor dances the joyful dance in the enemy's camp. It is a symphony of movement into the morning, and the evening sun settles. Time overtakes the enemy's power to destroy. What are you saying, Sard? asked Tameric. You know what Sard is saying, or do you have to hear him speak it? Sard intends to move against the upper echelon and seize control of the realm. The Tab and Shar are like swamp near, neatly tucked among the grasses, but set to pounce and kill. Without your support, the Tab and Shar will fight the realm and win the final battle. But Sard will send them all to the Death Empire. Blaze spoke in a low voice. Rising up against the echelon is an insurmountable task. The merits of Sard's plan do not concern you. We do not stand against you, Sard, said Elkin. Quite the contrary. We have discussed the echelon's impotence many times privately. We have longed for someone to come forward and take action. Sard is encouraged and honored that you are loyal to him. By meeting here today, Sard leaves himself open to treasonous charges. By distorting the Aragostas damage, he is subject to further charges. Sard would only tell you that Al-Bashar has fallen. Sard is victorious and will be victorious again. The Fargates all fell in homage. Their support meant five additional Amperage Azakars, Selvits and equipment. Four Amperage Azakars the ground, and the ground shooters on the defense of Urkums were left to defend the home Urkum from his mutinous campaign. Sard does not want you to consider that your task is insurmountable. He nodded to Roik and the wide Nikitim, formed a red field with yellow and orange outlines of the strategic Urkums, arched like a bell around the home Urkum. Military outposts framed a purple outlined square outside the more populated Urkums. The agricultural Urkums scattered around the square, bordered the Urkums rich in metals and ore still further out. What do you suggest in your insurmountable plan, Bargat Garmin? asked Elkin. Sard heard their upper lips vibrating. The conventional plan would be seizing the agricultural Urkums, stop the food shipments, and then attack our own outpost. Brave Selvids will die, and each of you is aware of the shooter reserve output. But Sard has another way to take the home Urkum. Excuse me, Sard, said Mir. Sard was aware of his planning abilities. Your plan has merits, but how do we attack the outpost simultaneously? What is your opinion, Mir? Direct all forces, all Asakars, against the outpost. Sard and Tark designed and placed these reserves. An enemy would never have as close access as we have. As you know, Sard has been recalled to the home Urkum. He will use those orders as a lure. Our Selvets will take the military Urkums and the administrative post. At this time, Sard will make his demands for the upper echelon to surrender. Elkin will then accuse Sard of insurrection against the realm. We do not understand, said Tameric. Tell the Echelon? As the defensive outposts turn their reserves on the Aragoster, Elkin will quietly install loyal Selvets in defensive reserve position. 
and with a full military alert, we can send our Azakars where we wish to send them. Sod will be brought back to the home, Urkham, in a full-strength Yestic field. An excellent plan, Vargit Garmin. Sod will take power, and all will be witness to history. He raised his Westic To the greater glory of the realm. Chapter 51 the light from a single torch outside the metal bars cast a primordial glow across the dirt floor. Loftus gagged again from the stench of unwashed men, locked behind bars for months, even years. Once strong bodies now lacked muscle mass and minds lost hope. The guards had pushed a garbage-lined wood trough into the cell once a day during the ten days of his incarceration. He sat in the moist black dirt and leaned against a scaly rock wall. On the first day, he discovered the etchings on the surface of his clear bunshaf each time he thought about the tabunshaf. He held the bunshaf in his hands and silently read part of the tenth tenet of the Saber, inspired by the tabunshaf in the first millennium, that the quietude of life's balance joined with the upper levels. For in the storm they perish, and in the center they live. Loftus remained baffled as to why the etchings spontaneously appeared. More than confusion, he wondered about this Tabunshar and the pervasive philosophy that had spread across time and space. Curious, he vowed if he ever survived this imprisonment to find the saber and read the words of Tabunshar. He opened his eyes when three guards caused commotion outside. They shoved another prisoner down the hall. He wondered if they had finally caught Zack. The grid door was unlocked and opened. One of them shoved the spindly man to the dirt, but he jumped to his feet as they quickly closed the door. He gripped the metal bars. Liars! Liars! Silence! yelled the guard who pushed him. You're all cowards and I am innocent. Tell your story to the tribunal. Ha <laughs> ha! The guard joined the others near the torch. The prisoner wore an open blue jersey and light leggings tied at the waist. Loftus followed him as he moved around the men sprawled across the floor. He studied each man and then returned to the bars. The prisoner's smooth hands convinced Loftus he was not a criminal. I'm Loftus. Ah, he said, looking him over. Not here very long. You aren't broken yet. He scanned the grid with a disdainful gaze. I swore I'd never be back here again. Two years in this filth because of the tribunal. What did you do? continued looking at each man inside the grid. Let's just say this time I chose the wrong friend. Is that a crime? asked Loftus. What kind of a question is that? Associating with Tobin Shah believers is nothing that Tolton tolerates, nor will his henchmen on the tribunal. Interesting, said Loftus, taking a liking to the prisoner. But she was beautiful. Oh, so beautiful he said, smiling, and his dark eyes brightened. Worth the grit. I have no affinity for Tabunshah. I wanted the woman. He sniffed the air and winced. I dreaded this place. I dreaded it. I am Roas. Tom Loftus, said Loftus, shaking his hands. Two names? Well, I will call you Loftus. He produced the same infectious smile and looked as if he could talk his way out of anything. What did you do? Loftus chuckled when he thought about crossing the passageway to this new world. I don't think you'd believe me even if I told you. Loftus. Royce put his hand on Loftus's shoulder. 
We're both going to be in here for a while. If you could not tell me of your crime, then tell me, what is it you do? I am a trader of last resorts. A what? A trader of last resorts? I trade other people's goods and services when they are desperate. You run a pawn shop, said Loftus. I am not familiar with that term. Not important, I'm not from these parts. Forget I said that. No, no, tell me. My business, Loftus, I have heard every story, every confabulation. Loftus smiled and looked briefly and then into Roas's brown eyes. I have come from another world. You mean place, world, earth. Roas squinted, held Loftus's arm and spoke in a lower voice. How did you get here? The intergalactic passageway, whispered Loftus. Passageway, see. You do heed the words of Tabunshah. I understand now. Roas's expressive eyes opened wide. My friend and I were put in a processing area by machines called Greaves. We were sent through archways. I materialized before two villages and they turned me in. I haven't been able to find my friend. Roas stared and rolled his tongue. Well, you said you'd heard it all. Until now, friend. I know enough of Tabunshah to know you sound like a seer whose prophecies span through the millenniums. The words of the Saber were eliminated by the Tolton. This Tolton, why does he hate Tabunshah? asked Loftus. And why do you ask? Roas tilted his head and brought Loftus across the grid. Once around the rusted support poles, a few prisoners called out Roas's name and chided him about his return. He waved his hand. I'm just visiting. Loftus sat with Roas in the corner. Tabanshar is supposed to be something sacred. I was raised in the worship of Tabanshar the time before the Tolton, said Roas. Before the Tolton? Of course. The Eskas, they ruled through the Noma. Everyone worshipped Tabanshar. But the Tolton gathered great support across the Askrans. He formed enemies and destroyed the Nomas. The Eskers and their followers fled across the Great Sea to the Nezkrans. I have been to the Nezkrans, friend. Never again did I see the Eskars trust the people, and the Tolton forbid the worship of Tabanshah. Who was Tabanshah? asked Loftus. You really don't know, do you? Loftus shook his head. A mystery more than anything else, the lore has been handed down through the ages. All the talk of other worlds in the sky. From long ago, the great battles in space and passageway between worlds. Roas grinned. You sound as if you've been on that passageway. And you wear the symbol of Tabunshah. Roas reached for Loftus's Bunshah and held it in his hand. He opened and closed his eyes several times. The tenants of the Seba. I've seen those tenants, but only when I think of Tabunshah. Perhaps you are resonating. Resonating? asked Loftus. Yes, calling forth to them, being receptive to the words of Tabunshah. It has been so long since I resonated. His eyes intensified as he carefully read the inscriptions. Yes, from the first millennium. Loftus, consider yourself fortunate that they did not see this. If you wear this at the tribunal hearing, you will assure your own death. My story will stand on its merits. <laughs> then you are a fool, a fool who knows nothing about Tabanshah. Yet you wear this Bunshaf inscribed with tenants. I tell you, this Bunshaf 
We'll send you to your death in the Cadia. He let the Bunshaw fall back against Loftus' shirt. Loftus tucked it back inside. For a few minutes, Roas positioned his elbows on his folded knees. He inhaled and finally turned toward Loftus. Tabunshaw fled. Where? Roas smiled a more serious smile. You don't find Tabunshaw. Worshippers tell you Tabunshaw comes to you. Like I said, resonating. After the battles, they disappeared. Not everyone, even the Tolton, knows where the Tabunshaw is. In the Nezkrian, Tabunshaw worship is still permitted within and outside the Noma. The Oryx Soms, the believers in Tabunshaw, pray to Tabunshaw freely. But the Tolton has taught everyone here to treat Tabunshaw as a legend, a myth. That is why the Tolton instituted the Law of the Enclaves. The law states simply that the worship of Tabanshar is forbidden in any way and brings an immediate sentence of death in the Kadir. For what? He had the same reassuring feeling he felt when he was possessed by the Greaves. Somehow I don't fear death. Everything will be taken care of. How is that possible? I am just a traitor of last resorts. Maybe Tabanshar worship has some meaning for you. Then worship, or whatever it is, is genuine. Or self-deception is the great enigma. But I want you to abandon your bunshot before you face the tribunal, Loftus. You are making their case to kill you. Why does the Tolton punish believers of Tabunshah? Roas dragged his open hand across his face and spoke with his eyes closed. Thousands of believers were killed to secure the Tolton's power. It is at that time the law of the enclaves was enacted. More died and others left as the Tolton consolidated his power. And now, said Loftus, this society lacks the very basis of its own spirituality and justice. A group of conformists who are mired in the constraints of a backward and immobile civilization. He furrowed his brow and gazed around the grid. Where did those words come from? You did say it. No, I didn't say it. Perhaps you are just falling prey to self-deception. I think you're right. Loftus was at first embarrassed by his pontificating, yet something tugged at his mind and emotions. Why did he care about this primitive society in Tabunsha? He had crossed an intergalactic passageway and had emerged from a sophisticated embarkation area with machines capable of transforming his mind and clothing. Loftus lifted his bunshoff, and again the ancient words materialized on the glass. He gripped the bunshoff as he reclined next to Roas and closed his eyes. As he drifted off, the pungent urine and body odors choked the air. To fight the misery, he conjured up the image of Kath rising out of the woods on her horse in Appleton. Then the heightened blue boat on the passageway shattered his thoughts. Kath and his world back on Earth were only a distant memory evaporating with every passing minute inside the wretched grid. Chapter 52 Loftus heard the guards call his name. He popped open his eyes. Cleaner guards in brilliant red uniforms and curved, black-polished helmets accompanied the usual grid guards. The one called Loftus will stand and move toward the grid. I am he. You are summoned to trial at the White Bench. The Tribunal will hear your case. Loftus felt his bunshoff now safely tucked in his pants pocket. Roas, seated against the wall, nodded at him as he stepped around the jeering prisoners. 
Guards open the grid and thrust spear points through the opening to push the prisoners back. I wish to tell my story. The burly guard yanked him outside. His black helmet glistened in the torchlight. You will have your chance. They led him between the stone walls and into a larger corridor with arched windows. The cleaner air drifted inside. Surely this tribunal will listen to reason. You are halfway to the Kadir, you fool. What is the Kadir? The acid pit, Oryx Psalms. No one will question the sentencing of a Tabanshah worshipper. You don't understand. It is you who do not understand. Guard knocked him to the stone floor. He turned to fight and the guards pushed their sharpened spears toward him. He recognized the stairs leading down through the outside archway. For ten days he had longed for the sunlight and now the brightness burnt his eyes. As he surveyed the village below, the thought of dying in the acid pit unnerved him. Again a peaceful essence somehow descended upon him, convincing him that he would somehow survive. The grid guards remained behind him along the stone road. Then they loaded him into an open wood cart filled with hay and pulled by shaggy, dirty blue guampus. Three guards sat in back with him. When the little guard across from him shouted, the cart rocked away from the massive stone prison atop the village hill. Where are we going? Silence, Oryx Holmes! Loftus leaned back in the hay. Thought about Zack as he watched the high, thin clouds mixing into the clear blue sky. His friend must have emerged somewhere else on the planet and might have encountered the same hostile reception. The peaceful sensation again swept over him. Somehow he would live through this ordeal. The Tolton's magnificent blue fortress spires pointed skyward. An intricate brown grainy facade extended along the manicured green shrubs and extensive lawn-covered grounds. The guards spoke of the Tolton's great riches and how every day, from the viewing stands, the Tolton and his wife enjoyed watching the prisoners die. The cart rolled toward an attached edifice with a rounded thatched roof. The guard informed him that the tribunal met upstairs behind the white doors. How do you become a tribunal member? asked Loftus. Silence! The guard swatted his legs with a spear. Silence or you will die now! Brave man with a weapon, said Loftus, clamping his fist. The cart slowed at the metal gate along a stucco wall covered with vines. A younger guard ordered him out. Loftus jumped off the cart and kept ahead of the spear points. They marched him up the wide stone stairs to massive white doors with polished brass hinges. Someone inside opened the doors, revealing a center-tiled walkway that led to a gurgling water fountain spurting upward. The smooth-painted walls were adorned with landscape paintings and marble busts bordered the walkway. The guards marched him to a side corridor. People lingered next to more guards along a white balustrade. Praise to the Tolton! shouted the guards in front of the smaller white doors. Praise to the Tolton! returned the door guards. Is the tribunal ready for the Oryxome's prisoner? The guards opened the doors and the sound of a crowd shouting drifted outside. Huge white columns supported an upper gallery packed with rowdy villages leaning over the rails and a more subdued group dressed in finer clothes sat in the seats below. A glow like sun shining near the horizon on a winter's afternoon entered the chamber from translucent windows above the upper galleries. Apricot stained glass rimmed each milky window. 
As the guards marched the prisoners out a side door, Loftus glanced at the huge white bench up front. A group of three frosty-haired men in red robes sat behind the paneled bench. The bench's pediment rested on polished white columns and a spreading red and black tapestry covered the wall behind. The lower gallery quietly turned toward Loftus and he followed the guards, but the upper group chided him with loud insults and invective harangues. He heard references to Tabun Shah and forbidden worship. One of the clerks in a black robe stood and faced him. The tribunal requests the accused address the white bench. Another clerk crunched a piece of yellow parchment in his hands. He slowly panned the lower spectators until he focused on Loftus. The accused will state his name. He cleared his throat and his voice echoed around the spacious room. I am Captain Thomas B. Loftus. The center member of the tribunal, a thin elderly man, banged on a heavy wood gavel. It is duly recorded. I am Zartus, and I, along with Avalon and Orthon, have been empowered to address all blasphemies against his rule. Be forewarned of the danger, Loftus. The case against you is grave. Witnesses in the general report describe the nature of your crimes. I would advise you that the decision of the tribunal is final. Conviction will result in the Cadia. Do you understand? I understand, said Loftus, his heart thumping. Someone above called for his death. He then looked into Zartus's creamy blue eyes. Seated next to Zartus was a younger man with wavy dark hair who jotted down notes. Loftus's eyes opened wider when he observed that Orthon resembled an older Frank DeLuca. The impossible became real. Loftus fully recognized DeLuca when Orthon, the old man with craggly skin around his neck, slowly nodded at him. Ten or possibly fifteen years had aged his friend's large frame, yet his crisp blue eyes were as sharp as ever. Let us begin the proceeding, said Zartus. The horns blasted again and Zartus turned to DeLuca. Orthon, you have requested to question this man. I have, thank you, Zartus. The same affable mannerisms Loftus had always known laced Luca's voice. I can say, Loftus, you're a young man, Terry, who understands uh, the value of the Tolkien's existing order. You must realize it's our sworn duty within the system to uphold the laws set forth by the Tolkien's edicts. I will do my part, as will the other members of the tribunal, to assure your rights in this matter. Orthon, your presence here and your determination to uphold the Tolton's law is reassuring. Kill him now! shouted someone from the gallery. Avalon held a parchment piece in his hand. We will now begin a list of charges against the prisoner. Wait, said DeLuca. I reserve the right of concert. Proceed, said Zartus. As I related privately to my fellow tribunal members, my check on this prisoner's background indicates his loyalty to the Tolton. May I make this a part of the official charges? This is highly irregular, said Zartus. We do not even know the full extent of your information. Shall I forward the information to the tribunal? asked DeLuca. At your discretion, Orthon. Zartus's graciousness is appreciated. DeLuca slid a stack of papers down the bench. He looked at Loftus. You are from the Evis village in the Necris Valley, Loftus, is that true? Yes, Orthon, said Loftus. 
in the necklace. DeLuca's face wrinkled and sagging, jiggled as he spoke. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the Ebers village and the whole Necrus Valley noted for its strong support of the Tolton and his ways? Yes, Orthon. And I thought the people there committed to the elimination of the Orc zones. Thousands died for the Tolton, returned to Zartus. And I might add, the effort to stamp out any vestige of Tavanshar has been substantial there. I was not aware of that, replied Zartus, not looking up as he read additional papers. And you, Loftus, said Deluca, have been a part of those loyal efforts, correct? Yes, Orthon, is why the charges against me make no sense. Then why are you in need? asked Zartus. Avis is across the mountains, the second mountains, said Avalon. Loftus gulped and looked toward Deluca. Deluca spoke in a louder voice. Well, I would say in his defense, let him speak for himself, Orthon, said Zartus. Well, I have never been to the Mead before. I did not ask that of you. The upper galleries pounded and the shouting accelerated. The horns blared and the commotion continued. Tell us why you have traveled to the Mead. I assure you, Zartus, said Loftus with passion rising in his tone. I did not travel to the Mead to worship Tabanshar or to spread the word of Tabanshar. Several gallery members taunted him. Warwick Sol, Warwick Sol. I find that hard to believe, said Deluca over the war. I am not a worshipper of Tabanshah. I was instructed from youth to eliminate Tabanshah. The trumpets masked his words and Zartus motioned guards into the gallery. Silence, or we will clear the galleries. You talk as one clever, said Avalon. The appearance of the bearded guards above quelled the chatter. Don't you understand that I am disgusted that I have been placed in the grid? and that I have been brought to this proceeding today and have my name associated with such heresy? Liar, said a deep voice from the floor. No, I stand here as an innocent man brought before the white bench on false charges. Deluca nodded with the same slight grin Loftus remembered from the service. Hear him, hear him. You have been brought here, said Zartu, standing again. You have been brought here because two loyal citizens of the Mead have witnessed an act of Orc souls. The claim, Loftus, is that you appeared from nothingness. May I address the tribunal? Yes, you may, said DeLuca quickly. How is this possible and why would I engage in this activity? Orthan, you can attest to my background. While his family's a trading family, loyal to the Tolton, he only wandered into the Mead when his trading party was attacked in the Second Mountains toward the High Desert. Is this the truth, Loftus? Yes, yes. I entered the village from the trails. I encountered the loyal citizens when I first entered the village. I am not a follower of Tavanshah. These charges are just not true. Zartus perused his papers. Deluca handed him additional documents. He is not telling the truth, said the chunky little man from the alley. Both he and the older man stood inside a round wood rail across the hall. The tribunal will now hear from the accusers. Luca shrugged his shoulders. I swear, he appeared from nowhere, Zartus. Then you say Tabanshar exists. See, he twists the words. Where were you two coming from? The heavier man looked down. Well, we... Let me ask again, where were you two coming from? 
the remote house. I'm sorry, we did not understand your response, said DeLuca. I said we were in the remote house. That is not a crime. No, it isn't, said DeLuca. But being remote negates what you tell us. We did not drink that much, said the other man. I don't know whether you did or you didn't, but I know your credibility is severely challenged. How can we think of sending this man Tari to the Kadir if there is such doubt? The gallery's chant continued. Kadir! 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 Loftus cringed at the thought of the acid pool. Zartus's gray eyes darted between DeLuca and the gallery. I find validity in what Orton has produced for this tribunal. One of the clerks leaned over to the younger Avalon. He nodded and spoke loudly to the assemblage. Zartus, I have just been informed of an additional witness. What additional witness? asked DeLuca. What witness? asked Loftus. He turned and Roas moved between the assemblage and entered the witness circle. Roas is a prisoner in the grid. He has relevant information, said Arvalon. Enter the witness. Begin. Arvalon furrowed his brow and stared at the parchment for several seconds. You are a prisoner in the grid. I am. Loftus' stomach wrenched. He feared Roas had told them about his bunshaw in order to leave the grid. Arvalon squinted as he gazed out. And you live here in the Mead. I do, I am a traitor of last resort. Sartus stood. What is your accusation? Roas refused to look at Loftus. I met him in the grid this morning. He has a bunshaft inscribed with the tenants of Tabunshaw. The upper crowd pounded and screamed for the bunshaft. Luca closed his eyes, but Loftus kept his eyes trained on the guards near the white bench. He placed it in his pocket just this morning to hide it from you. Guards, said DeLuca, and Loftus opened his eyes. Search the prison. Loftus removed the bloomshot from his pocket, and the gallery gasped. The sacred inscription somehow touched him deeply, and he raised it into the air. The hefty man from the alley stepped in front of him. See? A worshiper of Ta Bunshaw. The guard grabbed the bloomshot, and through the continued confusion in the gallery, he brought it to Zartus. The elderly tribunal member stared at the bloomshot. I see no inscription, but this is a relic of Tabun Shah. He handed the Bunshaf to Arvalon. Loftus mouthed the words to DeLuca. DeLuca also booed the Bunshaf briefly as the horns reverberated throughout the hall. Zartus remained standing. Is this your Bunshaf, Loftus? The traitor of last resort obviously wants to leave the grid, said DeLuca over the madness in the hall. I found this on my journey here, said Loftus. What are you doing to this man, Terry? asked DeLuca. Certainly the white bench is more worthy of an equitable form of justice. We have no proof that this is Loftus's Bunshaw. I would ask for the immediate release of this prison before word gets back to the Necros Valley. I do not direct the tribunal on what the Necros Valley may think, said Zartus. I want the truth in this matter. He says it's not his bunshaft, said DeLuca. But Zartus, I insist we are inviting great difficulties here. The Necros people don't have the same customs as the Mead, he yelled over the crowd. We could even begin an armed conflict. Silence, the horn sounded discordantly. I am convinced this is his bunshaft. I vote for the Kadir. Well, this is not justice. I cannot do this. I vote with Zartus said Arvalon. I must protest, said DeLuca, and Loftus' fist tightened. 
Overruled. Sentence will be read. I tell you, I have not worshipped Tavon Shah, cried Loftus. The Tolton is quite specific in the original edict. No worshippers of Tavon Shah shall be allowed to live. No exception was made for outsiders. Sentence will be carried out at the earliest moment. The case is ended. Remove the prisoner. I protest this treatment, said DeLuca, moving his bulky body upward. The gallery booed and cried out epitaphs against him. I will personally protest this to the Tolton if I have to. You have that right, Orthon. Don't embarrass yourself with the Tolton. Guards quickly descended upon Loftus. DeLuca's face compressed and he rubbed his mouth as he sat down. They grabbed Loftus under the armpits and ankles and hauled him into an open staircase near the white bench tapestry. Inside the staircase he heard the crowd clamoring for his death. The guards carried him up several flights. In the dark upper corridor with unfinished wood supports he was dragged over to a grid cell and forced inside. The door clamped shut and he sat on the floor. He wondered how long he had to live and what actions and influence DeLuca might have in the Mead to prevent his untimely death in the acid pit. Chapter 53 From his grid window, Loftus gazed across the perfectly cut green grass and the sunset's orange hues. Lines of villages entered the stadium under a weathered stone gray arch less than a half a mile away. After listening to the crowd thunder all afternoon, Loftus reasoned the Kadia and probably other torture areas were located inside the stadium. Roas had betrayed him, yet he blamed himself for telling his story to a stranger. Sartus's decision indicated an excruciating death inside the Kadia. Intuitive thoughts Loftus could not understand mixed with logic. Those same feelings allowed him to believe DeLuca would find a way out, and Zack had survived somewhere else on the planet. He turned from the window and retrieved a dented metal food tray left by the guard. Then he sat on the solid wall bed. With a warped, two-pronged fork, he dug into a mound of diced dark chunks and lifted the mixture to his mouth. Although salty, it tasted similar to a crunchy hash he had to eat occasionally in the service. He picked at the concoction and finally washed it down with a cup of cold water. As he was chewing on another large glob, DeLuca, wearing a loose-fitting baggy top and textured pants, approached alone down the torch-lit corridor. Well, Orthon comes to see the prisoner eat his last meal. DeLuca produced the jailer's tarnished metal key and turned it in the lock. Well, don't be so sure of that. Where's the guard? I'm a member of the tribunal. I dismissed them from the area so we could talk. He's back at the grid. I never thought I'd be seeing you again, Tommy. Tell me about it. DeLuca hugged him. Loftus stared at his shriveled, lined face. Even his hands were bony. How long have you been here, Frank? Twenty-three years, six months, and fourteen days. Come on. It's true. Loftus shook his head. Your boat went right through us inside the passageway. Zack was right. It was some kind of time warp. Where is Zack? Processed by the Greaves, they sent him somewhere else, said Loftus. They did the same thing to us. We barely escaped the Creod back at Bathurst. Is Kath all right? Yes, look, Tommy, I'm trying to stop your execution. Loftus stepped to the window. The crowd occasionally roared inside the stadium. How did you get to be one of those tribunal judges? 
I work my way up through the system, not that different from what you do in the wards and precincts back home. Although I dread thinking about what Allsworthy and the Creod did to Earth. Earth is gone. We'll never see Earth again. I just want to see the sunset here tomorrow night, Frank. I have connections in the Mead and beyond. We're trying to fix this, Tommy. Fix it? You make it sound like a speeding ticket. DeLuca laughed. It's been a long time since I heard the word speeding ticket. Well, I'm glad you're so amused. So this is how the Tolton gets his jollies. The Tolton has done great things for these people. Great things? This is a repressive, amoral society. Maybe you caught us on a bad day, said DeLuca, moving behind him at the window. Where is she? asked Loftus, still looking at the darkened grounds. She's 23 years older, Tom. DeLuca put his hand on Loftus' shoulder. He faced DeLuca's tired old blue eyes. Well, she's married to the Tolton. She's what? For the last 15 years, she's been married. Look, she had nothing left and was stranded here. She felt abandoned. My God, he said, exhaling several times as he paced. Then he stopped midway across the room. What about John? Tolton never got along with him. He disappeared. Loftus banged his fist against the grid. Or was killed? Damn this place! I'm sorry. John is probably still alive. Loftus ran his hand back through his thick hair. Frank, get me the hell out of here. Talk to Kath. Well, I don't know about that. The looker reached into his pocket and pulled out the bunchoff. Here. Loftus moved closer and DeLuca placed it in his hand. Again, the tenants materialized for him. Thank you. I never thought that thing had any meaning, but apparently it's connected in some way. Tommy, you might as well settle down. Relax on your bed if you want. I plan to be here well into the night. There's more to this Tobin Shah stuff than the words inscribed on a bunchoff. Loftus looked up from the etchings. How so? Things involving you, that's what I'm trying to tell you. Me? DeLuca nodded and moved around the bed. If you're not going to sit down, then I am. This place scorns Tabanshah. Only here in the Askrans. It's different in the Neskrans. See? I've made it my business since I arrived here to involve myself in the study of this planet. I've even procured the illegal copies of the Seba. I don't even begin to tell you how that passageway works, but there are references to it all throughout the Seba. All nine planets were connected by this link through the galaxy, the intergalactic passageway. I know. I was born on Altashar. Zack told me about your dreams. I'll get to that. I'm telling you, it's all connected. But who was Tabanshah? They were the elite and more. As the torch flickered in the hall, DeLuca detailed the tenants from the Saber, memorized over years of study. Loftus finished the hash mixture. Between great prophecies and stories of their time in the service, DeLuca revealed a hidden melancholy about his relegation to this planet. Throughout their discussion, he described a vast, ancient Mantari civilization in direct competition with the Creod realm. The Tabon Shah were capable of fantastic things. Tark told me that back on Earth, and I don't know how they did it. What about this fight between the Creod realm and the Tabon Shah? The saber implies, if you interpret it, that the Tabon Shah lost their dominance in space, so the Creods became aggressive. 
Space battles crippled the Tabanshah's quiet little group of engineered planets. Outposts and colonies were abandoned. My feeling is the Creods were jealous of the sophistication and high culture. They took revenge with vows to commit genocide on the entire Mantari civilization. And now the Tabanshah, the elite leaders, are gone. But people pray to Tabanshah. Resonate is the word. I believe the Tabanshah still exists, but not in this reality. I don't understand that. Loftus ran his fingers along the Bunshaf's etchings. My entire life, I've felt like I was being brought along, a predetermined plan. Oh, what you're saying is pretty close to what I believe is the truth. I talked to one of the worshippers. He can see the tenants as you do. Loftus held the Bunshaf in the torch light. He wears the truth, the Suryaf Khan, son of Taban Shah, awakened from his dreams and his youthful yearnings. He comes from afar to Abashah. Mantari, beware, prepare for the final battle. The writing is from the second millennium, Tommy, thousands of years ago, from the Saber. This Bunshaf matches the Bunshaf given to you by your father on Althashir, according to your dreams. Listen, Frank. I just want to avoid baptism in the acid pit. I want to find the passageway and get back to Earth. Find Zack and bring Kath and John with me. Tall order. Let me be truthful. Kath is over 60 years old and blames you for all of this. I think she tried to rationalize everything that befell her after you arrived in the hills outside her cabin. Loftus headed for the window. The night air sauntered inside and ruffled his hair as he panned the smooth grounds and silhouetted stadium. It's true, I never should have gone near her place. Oh, really, said DeLuca as he strained to rise. He joined Loftus at the window. Let me tell you something. She made her own decisions up there on the trail. You told her to leave and she chose to help you get out of town. And I don't think she's going to let you die in the Kadir. Nor do I think you'll sweep her off her feet like you did in Appleton. What the hell is left in this wretched place? He gripped the prison cell grid and tears formed in his eyes. My world, Frank, it's gone. My best friend is missing, and now you tell me the only woman I ever love truly despises me. Well, tell me what I have left, Frank. I think you're the Suryaf Khan. Loftus stared at the Bunshoff and hurled it across the room. Damn this whole place. I'm as well as convicted and dead. Tommy, you have to trust me. I can placate Zartus and Avalon, but I think it's the people who are thirsting for your blood. He turned and looked into DeLuca's tired eyes. Frank, we're on some distant planet. When we work together on Earth, you could get in your car and drive anywhere you wanted to. We had such opportunities, and it was all squandered. We lived in a golden age, Frank, and we took it all for granted. I know that. Look, I'll get you out of this somehow, and you'll have to forget about Kath. Find your way to a new life. Maybe you'll locate Zack. I don't know, but you have to go on. The rest will take care of itself. I have to go. Okay. I may not speak with you again, Tommy, but trust me. No matter how bad it gets, trust that I'll fix it. There are ways around that pit. I've seen it done before. Life never turns out how you expect it to, does it? No, of course not. Just don't expect it to. Life is a series of events, Tommy. There's an old adage from the Saber. And what does the saber say, Frank? DeLuca's eyes brighten in the torchlight. Nothing stays the same. 
The world exists as a constant, unyielding process, working towards seemingly distant ends. There are no ends, no beginnings. Everything exists as a part of a continuing flux, a scattering of individual sojourns, adding up to things finite but never complete, never finalized, flowing and ebbing on forever. Someday I'll study this saber. Yes, you will. DeLuca picked up the bunshaw from the floor and placed it in Loftus's palm. Then he put his hand on Loftus's shoulder. Either way, I wish you the old Loftus luck. He turned and opened the grid. The door snapped into place, but DeLuca never looked back as he waddled into the flickering corridor light. He rounded the corner and Loftus clutched the bunshaw. In the dim firelight, his mind drifted back to Appleton when he was in college. Then... The afternoon sun reflected in Kath's rusty hair and the lush valley spread below the mountainside. His eyes focused on the flickering flame and he allowed himself to resonate for help against a certain death in the morning. Sard has annihilated the Mantari planet, causing the Tolton to flee. He's surrounded by loyal officers, but those on the home planet are plotting against him. Dozens of Mantari have been taken prisoner and will be used in the bloody and torturous games aboard his ship on the way back to the home planet. If you don't think that Loftus and Sard are going to clash in the future, then you're in the wrong book. Join me for episode three next week, Soldier and the Bargard Emnus by Robert P. Fitton. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com. And here's a real nifty factoid. You can listen to all my audiobooks without interruption on audible.com. Just type in Robert P. Fitton. Thank you and good night.